Turn with me in your Bibles to turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 24. We are going to do a, a brief sermon series, if you will, that I'm going to call "Christ and the Carols." That I may pick up on again next year, uh, meaning the next Christmas season, if you will. Um, <clears throat> For any pastor, if you have any sympathy, whatever, for pastors, and I know you all do, we preach through the same passages every Christmas. It gets old. So I'm going to do something different this year. Instead of preaching from Matthew and Luke, I'm going to instead preach on a number of the Old Testament passages that are sung about in our hymns yearly, but that we may not be as familiar with as we ought to be that would help us understand better Matthew and Luke and those other uh, Christmas gospel passages, if you will. So with that being said, we're going to start in Psalm 24 today to eventually point us to a hymn that uh, perhaps you're not as familiar with, but is one of the great Advent hymns that kicks off the Christmas season. So with that being said, won't you turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing (coughs) from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, He is the King of glory. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that You would give us a mind to receive uh, Your holy truth this morning. We pray that as we sing Your praises and as we uh, contemplate and meditate upon the words that we have sung and upon the words that we are about to receive even now, uh, Lord, that You would draw our hearts to You, that You would turn our hearts toward heaven, uh, that our, our minds would comprehend the very will of God, and that we would desire the things of God, desire the things of your kingdom, and turn away from all forms of evil. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Most of you are familiar somewhat, at least, with the legend of King Arthur and his, his, uh, his host, his court, uh, More than likely you're familiar with this famous sword, Excalibur, uh, the famous sword in the stone uh, account, if you will, that's uh, told by, supposedly by the the famous wizard Merlin, who is the wise magician, who tells us that King Arthur has the right to rule over England because he was able to pull this sword from the stone. For whoever could do this miraculous act... Um, would be the only divinely appointed king to rule the throne. And he also would be the only one who had the, the rightful heritage, the bloodline, to become the king 
over England. So according to the story, many nobles had tried and failed over the years to pull that sword from the stone, and uh, no one could be found who could do it, but uh, it just so happens on a very auspicious day, on Christmas Eve, no less, in the churchyard where the stone was, uh, we find King Arthur as a young, as a young man, Arthur before he's a king, uh, goes and, and just sort of haphazardly tries to pull this, the sword from the stone, not knowing who he is, and almost accidentally pulls it out and is shocked that he actually was able to wield uh, the, the, the famous sword. So later on we find that he has to go do it again because no one saw it. <laughs> so now he has to wait for a crowd to gather and then pull it out and show them that he is the rightful king over all the land. I, I saw a bumper sticker the other day that said something like, um, if I remember correctly, um, I don't believe in dragons, good men, and other such creatures. They don't exist. Something like that. Um, and uh, there's some truth to that, and hopefully not all truthful uh, in that regard, but in the sense that King Arthur is a myth, right? So we, we don't believe that he's actually a real man, that his court wasn't real, this this story's not real, it's just a fable, it's a myth, if you will, but, but I'll tell you, the way it's written, it's purposely written to sort of reflect the true king of the world, King Jesus, because what he is able to accomplish reflects what Christ has indeed accomplished. Psalm 24 tells us, instead of a sword being pulled out of a stone, we see a gate that has never been opened, that could not be opened by any man, but all of a sudden we see King Jesus coming and claiming his rightful place at the, at the right hand of, of God the Father after he has conquered sin and death forever, after he has shown that he is the only man who indeed has clean hands and a pure heart, as we'll look at the text here in just a minute. But he alone is the, the one worthy, one worthy man who is able to ascend God's holy hill, the one man who is able to come into the very presence of God and, and, and for God to be accepting of him and, and pleased with him. This psalm written by King David a thousand years before the time of Christ uh, shows the, some clear messianic implications. This is not just a, a psalm that's meant merely for praise or for contemplation, but it's, it's, a, it's a prophecy. It's meant to point us to the one who is to come. And we refer to it as an advent psalm, if you will, because it's, it's pointing to the coming of Christ both his first coming as well as his second coming, again, which we'll cover in a minute. But there, there are three clear divisions in this psalm I want to point out to you and uh, how they sort of all coalesce in the end. Uh, at first, they don't seem like they have anything to do with one another. If you look at the first part of the psalm, the first couple of verses, there David is acknowledging that the earth in its entirety belongs to the Lord, along with all of its creatures, all of its regions. It all belongs to the Lord, mainly because he is the one who has created it. He is the one who has founded it. Um, from the beginning. Then second, all of a sudden, uh, David transitions into the requirements of a man who can then ascend into God's holy hill. And you're thinking, what do these two things have in common? And then finally, there's a third section where we now see a return from a king after a battle, and he's being let into the city, uh, into the gates of the city of, of, of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, if you will. Now, all of these things are meant to point us to the coming of Christ. In its original setting, uh, if you remember, David 
is most likely writing this after they bring the Ark of the Covenant from the city of, of, of Kiriath-Jerim to Jerusalem after the, the famous battle in which David had conquered the Jebusites, claimed the city for himself, and now wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant into that new city uh, that God's presence might reside in the midst of their camp, might reside in the midst of their, their new town. Because the Ark of the Covenant symbolizes the very presence of God Himself, the natural question of the minds of those who are seeking to ascend up this mountain, up Mount Zion, they're asking, who can do this? Who can come up and climb God's holy hill? Who can stand before the very presence of God? And the reason why they're asking this question, and if you remember, uh, for those of you who've been reading along in our daily devotionals in, in First Chronicles, we saw the example of the first time they tried to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem and what happened. Because they were carrying the Ark not on the poles as the priests were, were told to do, but instead they were carrying it on that ox cart. And, and if you remember, for, uh, because of the, the oxen that had stumbled, now the cart is, 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 is falling over, tipping over, and as a result, a man named Uzzah reaches out suddenly to grab the ark in order to stable it so that it doesn't fall off the ox cart. And immediately, God's wrath burns in hot anger against him, and he is killed on the spot. And, and afterwards, we see David is unwilling to bring the ark into the city of Jerusalem. He's afraid for God's presence to dwell in their midst because of his great wrath and because of his great holiness. So now the question is being asked as they're now a second attempt coming into the city, who can dwell in the very presence of God? Who can ascend this holy hill and be with such a, a pure and holy God? That's essentially the substance of the psalm. It brings us to that question and then also brings us to the answer to that question. In verse 1, David though begins with this note of praise. He says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and, and those who dwell therein. Now, it, it's not surprising that he begins with this sort of note of praise of an international God, if you will, a global God who reigns over all. After all, David has just uh, conquered the Jebusites and now God's presence is dwelling in the midst of a what used to be a foreign nation. The promised land used to be the, the land of the Canaanites, and now particularly the land of the Jebusites. God is proving His rule over them just as He had proved His rule over the Egyptians and all other hostile nations. Indeed, God is not a provincial God. He's not a God of one particular mountain or one particular region, but He's a God over all. And uh, as a result, we see the famous Dutch theologian, politician, Abraham Kuyper. Most of you probably heard his Famous quote at one time or another, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which our sovereign God does not cry, mine. It's all His. He is the King of kings, the God of gods, the Lord of lords. It's all His. There's not a single place on earth that doesn't belong to Him. And as a result, there's not a single person on earth, not a single creature that He doesn't rule over. But notice particularly in verse 2, that David says, the Lord founded the earth on the seas and established it on what some of your translations will say rivers, some of them will say waters. He founded it on the seas and upon the waters. He's hearkening back to Genesis chapter 1, if you remember, when uh, originally it was just this chaos and this void, this formlessness, 
And then God brings order uh, to the world and, and establishes the world on, on the waters, establishes the dry land, and then gathers all the waters together into the seas and into the rivers. Now we all know from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus sort of compares the wise man and the foolish man based upon where they build their house, right? The wise man builds his house on the what? On the rock. Someone said sand, I heard that. The foolish man builds his house on the sand, right? What, what it, what, what's really strange here, though, is God is building his house on the water. The undulating waves of the water, God is so powerful, so wise. He can build his house where no other man could ever build a house. And he's showing that he can reign in all the chaos. Bring order out of nothing, if you will. Bring that, that power in such a, a grand display that the Lord is, is bringing His peace to, an, to a, an, an unordered world, if you will. And so it, from the very beginning, God's plan, His reign is a reign of peace, a reign of order. But then as you know, with the, the fall in the Garden of Eden, immediately you see chaos coming back in. right? Disorder coming back. Every time we see any aspect of the judgment of God, it's, it's being disordered all over again. And every time we see natural disasters, every time we see wars and rumors of wars over and over again, we're seeing this, this uh, attempt, if you will, for chaos to come back, to reign once again instead of having the Lord Himself reign over it all and showing His power over all. So it's, it's important to note that, that King David is, is singing this song on the way up to Mount Zion after putting things back in order, if you will. So he has just defeated the forces of darkness. He has just overcome the, the pagan armies, has restored this place that, that once was a temple to idols, and now has brought it and made it a temple unto God. The, the chaos has been defeated. Order has now brought back into reign. And so this now is tying in with the third section of the psalm where we see this king of glory has come back from battle. And he has a right to enter the city, and, and everyone is praising that he has defeated the foe. He has defeated the darkness. He has defeated the chaos, if you will. And, and said, just like God had said originally to the waves, thus far shall you come and no farther. Let your proud waves be stilled, right, in that sense. But it also ties to the second section of the psalm. In terms of this special plot of land that God particularly calls his own, not just the whole world being his own, but this particular piece of land is his own uh, because his own presence is seen to dwell there in such a magnificent way through the Shekinah glory, through the Ark of the Covenant. It's, it's meant to, to sort of show the new world order, if you will. That God is restoring order. He's restoring His peace. He's restoring a, a holy and righteous mountain in the midst of this chaotic world. The temple represents this kingdom of God. And so He's, he's proving this in such a magnificent way, but at the same time, the question is again, how could you possibly, as a sinner, as someone who's disordered, as someone who's, who's broken, as someone who's, there's something perverted and wrong with you, how could you then ascend this perfect kingdom of God? It, it, it's, it's almost unfathomable that someone could. So, now if I were to tell you in, in, in just a moment that I'm going to blow your minds, I'm going to absolutely blow some of your minds. You okay with that? Are you ready if I, if I were to blow your mind? All right. No, just knowledge. Just knowledge. Just all this. Just knowledge. 
here's, here's, here's what I want to tell you. The original Garden of Eden on earth was not in a valley, but on a mountain. Have I blown your mind yet? The original Garden of Eden, not in a valley, but on a mountain. Why do I say that? Ezekiel 28, verses 13 and 14. The prophet, in describing Eden, doesn't only describe it as a garden of God, but describes it as the holy mountain of God. Which This would make sense, though, if you think about it. When you go back and you read uh, the, the first couple of chapters of Genesis, and you're, you're reading about the, the, the waters that are flowing out of the Garden of Eden. It flows out of Eden, and it flows through four huge rivers, the Gihon, the Pishon, and then the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, right? And these are rivers that, say, surround entire civilizations. How can that happen unless somehow the elevation of the Garden of Eden is higher than those places? Does that make sense? Why do I bring this up? Just to blow your minds? No. Because every time we're, we're seeing God's presence in, in revealing Himself unto man, he's, he's showing Himself as in a high place, higher than them, right, in that sense. So it makes sense when David is asking the question, who can ascend God's holy hill? What he's really referring to is, who can be in the presence of God? You have to go up to be in the presence of God. You have to meet Him somehow by going up. And so in this particular case, God is, is, is in a very holy in a righteous kingdom, in a place that, that no sinful man could ever touch, no sinful man could ever enter, certainly couldn't climb up that holy hill in any way. And this is where the idea of the gates come in, right? So in the Garden of Eden, if you remember, Adam was originally called to be a steward of the garden, right? In, in particular, there are two commands that are given to Adam that he was called to do in reference to the garden. He was, he was called to work it and to keep it, right? Now, most of us think in the terms of, you know, agriculture, horticulture, he has to, you know, plant things, he has to weed things, whatever it is, at least later on after the fall for sure. But the word keep, most of us think of in terms of maintenance. He has to maintain the garden. But that's not actually what Moses is signifying here when he uses the term in Hebrew. The exact same two words that are used in reference to Adam in terms of the, the Garden of Eden, are also used in terms of the priest and the Levites later on in the tabernacle. They're both to work it and to keep it, but what, what Moses means by that is they're to guard it. They're to guard it from any unholy or impure influence from entering in. Now think of it this way. Adam's call, in addition to working the garden, was also to protect the garden from any impure, evil influence. So for all of those men who have ever said it was Eve's fault that she ate from the tree. Technically, the reason why God comes looking for Adam is because it was Adam's responsibility to protect the garden from the dumb serpent ever coming in there in the first place. He allows the conversation to be entertained. He allows the presence of evil to come into the holy gates of the Lord, if you will, the courts of the Lord. And as a result, we find the exact same word used in the Hebrew in the next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, that now the cherubim are the new gatekeepers. They're the ones called to guard the Garden of Eden. But they're not guarding it from Satan. Now they're guarding it from Adam. Because Adam now is the impure, unclean, sinful person who doesn't have a right to dwell in the presence of God. Now, as a result, we find that Gates 
from now on throughout the rest of the what we read in the scriptures are used to protect the holy place from the unholy people but primarily to protect unholy people from the wrath of a holy god right so when the ministry of the tabernacle began originally the priest and the levites were called to be both workers in the temple as well as guarders of the gates but by the time of david again you if you've been reading through the devotionals in first chronicles by the time of david david appoints 4000 levites whose sole task now is just to guard the gates there's a rotation of men and they're they're, they're each morning they're called to unlock the gates of the temple um, and then each evening they're to lock the gates again, preventing any ceremonially unclean person from entering within the, within the courts to prevent any vain or idolatrous thing from coming into the presence of God so that God's wrath doesn't break out not only upon those individuals, but upon the whole camp, right? It was precisely because these gatekeepers didn't do their jobs that we see later on in the book of Ezekiel that the Shekinah glory actually leaves the temple. Because we see idolatrous men are dwelling in the houses, uh, in, the, in the rooms of the temple courts itself. There's idol worship taking place in darkened rooms in the side of the courts of the temple. And, and, and the prophet Ezekiel is saying, enough's enough, the Lord is leaving the temple and is leaving His people because of this sin. The gatekeepers haven't been doing their job. So later on, after they are exiled to Babylon, and then they come home 70 years later, we see the same thing emerging. The same problem is occurring that Ezra and Nehemiah are reporting that the gatekeepers aren't doing their job. To the point where it actually lists in the one of the outstanding lists of men who committed egregious sins, it actually lists a number of gatekeepers who now have married foreign wives and have allowed them into the camp of the Lord. It's a huge problem. So again, you can see why uh, the camp is not holy. It's remained unholy. But that was the whole point of the gatekeeper was to keep unholy people from entering into the presence of the Lord. Now originally, David had set aside these men to protect the nation from wrath. But uh, ultimately, the only way anyone could ever come into the temple courts was always through the shedding of blood. Always. We just see just blood shed. Day after day, just just leader after leader after leader of blood being shed uh, in order to maintain a sense of ceremonially holy approach unto God. So again, the question is asked, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and stand in God's holy place? And, and the answer is given, beginning in verse 4. Very straightforward answer. Basically, a perfect man. You know, the, the, the man that... Uh, dragons and other creatures that don't seemingly exist. Where is this perfect man? A good man? Does he exist? Well, the answer is given. This man must have clean hands. You think of Pontius Pilate immediately. You know, he, he uh, knows that he doesn't have clean hands, so ceremonially he washes his hands of the guilt of his own sin. But basically, when, when the Scripture is saying he must have clean hands, it's referring to his actions. All of his actions have to be pure. In other words, he can commit no transgressions, no iniquities. In every way, his deeds have to be pure and righteous. But then in addition to that, 
In addition to clean hands, it also says he must have a pure heart. Pure desires, pure intentions. I saw another bumper sticker the other day that said this. Uh, I, I just started cracking up when I read it. Never heard anything like this before. It says, I believe in a better world where chickens can cross the road without having their motives questioned. This will sink in for some of you a little later. I believe in a better world where chickens can cross the road without ever having their motives questioned. So we'll stop asking, why did the chicken cross the road, right? It's interesting, in this person's idea of a better world, in other words, in this person's idea of paradise, maybe even heaven, their assumption is that no one will ever ask you why you're doing anything, right? Whereas in God's heaven, in order to even enter into this place of righteousness, every motivation is questioned. Every inclination, every desire, every dream even. Why did you do that? If you remember even when God confronts Cain, why are you angry? He's always asking the why. Not just the what, but the why. It's not just what we've done, but why we do it. God cares about that. God even commands us to have certain desires and certain emotions not just certain actions it's all the heart the whole of man so the the law of god requires for one to enter into the presence of god a perfect purity not just in your actions but in your thoughts in your desires your, your your very affections you can't get into heaven merely by trying to do good works you have to be good with good desire, pure, perfect desires. That's what he's saying. In order to get in, you have to be this type of man, the, the man that seemingly doesn't exist. Then in addition, in that next part of the verse, there exists, in order to send God's holy hill, a man must be perfectly just and honest in his dealings with both God and with men. For David says this, one must not lift up his soul to what is false or to what is vain. Now, that's a word that's often used in reference to idolatry. And idolatry is simply an empty thing, a vain thing, that men will lift up their hearts unto this thing in order to find security, in order to find happiness, in order to find meaning. Instead of looking to God, they're lifting up their hearts to these other things. What the Scripture seems to explain over and over again is every form of idolatry is not just sin, but it's an affront to a holy God in His rightful reign to rule over everything. When someone turns to idolatry, they're basically saying, I reject God's reign, and I'm going to turn to the reign of something else instead. Something even of my own making. I want to live for this and not for God. To ascend God's holy hill, one must never desire things that are not worthy of our desires. Never turn our hearts to things that cannot save us, things that cannot give us full satisfaction. Idolatry is a constant sense of escape. You're looking for something else other than God to entertain your thoughts, to give you happiness, to give you security. He says, never lift up your hearts to these things. In fact, the very next Psalm, Psalm 25, the first verse, David says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Not to idols, but to you. I want to lift up my heart. I want to trust in you. 
That's David's desire at that particular moment. Certainly it's been our desire at many times in our lives, but has it always been that case? No. There's not a single person here who has always desired God first. His kingdom first. We too have desired idols and have turned away from the holy and living God. But then in addition, he says, not only lifting up your hearts to the vain or false things, he also says, one who never swears deceitfully unto his fellow man. So in other words, in order to get into heaven, in order to ascend God's holy hill, you can never have told a single lie. Never have spoken a half-truth. Never have covered over the truth in order to protect your own good name. In order to get into heaven, one has to admit who they really are. In this case, it has to be a man who is what God calls him to be. Perfect. Of course, much more could be said in that regard of the commands of what God requires of us. I'm sure that you go through all the Ten Commandments, go through all the list of commands in Scripture, but basically David is sort of summarizing all of this into loving God with all your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself, right? There are other passages very similar to this one in other places in the Old Testament. Psalm 15 is almost word for word at parts similar to Psalm 24, but it elaborates more, gives a few more commands than Psalm 24 does. And there's another passage in Isaiah 33, verses 14 and 16, where the prophet Isaiah, he he adds this as part of the requirements for those who would stand before God. He says, he must walk righteously and speak righteously. He must stop up his ears from hearing bloodshed and shut his eyes from even looking upon evil. And I was meditating upon that this week and I'm thinking, not even to look at evil. Not even to listen to evil. Who here can say that they have always blocked out every form of evil? I was, uh, I was talking with one of the uh, candidates uh, this last week. I said, there are many things that I won't watch uh, on television or on a movie or whatever else because I know that those things are just evil. They're bad. And I reject them. But there may be other things that I'm okay with. I'm a little bit more comfortable because it doesn't seem to bother me as much. right? And there are many things that maybe I'm okay listening to. Maybe I'm okay... Uh, entertaining because it doesn't seem to bother me, but that's not the question. Does it bother God? Is it, a, is it an affront to a holy God? We all have our own terms of self-righteousness we think we live up to. But he's saying, no, for one to ascend God's holy hill, he can never entertain these things because he hates every form of evil, despises it in order to love his God. It would take these this perfection, if, if any of us would seriously consider the requirements, the qualifications for someone to enter into God's holy place, we all would immediately say, I, I'm not that person. Right? When you think of Psalm 1, even, the blessed man versus, and the wise man versus the foolish man, do you see yourself as the wise man? You're not meant to. Ultimately, you're the fool. I'm the fool. We all have turned toward idolatry. We all have entertained evil. And therefore, none of us can stand upon our own two feet and trying to climb up God's holy hill. It's, it's, it's impossible. This level of holiness, this standard of purity that God requires is beyond anything that we could ever approach. Even Jesus Himself said it this way, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. That's the standard. Who could live up to that? Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. 
But then David says in verse 5, the man who fulfills all these qualifications, he will receive blessing from the Lord. He will receive righteousness, or in this case, vindication from the God of his salvation. If we were to conduct a, a simple survey this morning, and I were to say, raise your hand if you have always had clean hands and a pure heart. Go ahead, raise your hand. Now, if I were to conduct the same survey in every church and every synagogue and any other place of worship all across the world in every generation from the beginning of time, who would be able to raise their hand? None of us. All of us would fall miserably short of the qualification. And that's the point. The psalm is not meant to give us hope that we can ascend of our own accord. We can't. It's meant to point us to one who can. And this man is not a myth. This man is is not some dragon or some creature or some false king. He is the king of kings. Now, this is the transition to verse 7. All of a sudden, we hear the voice of a crowd accompanying a king. And they're crying out to the gatekeepers who are watching over the gates of the city. And they're saying, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that this king of glory may come in. Now, the, the way David describes these gates, these old ancient doors. The reason why they're described in this way is because you're sort of meant to have this image in your mind of some old rusty gate that's never been opened. It stood locked for years and years and years since the very beginning in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were kicked out. These ancient doors. He says, lift them up that the king of glory might come in. Because the gates of paradise have been closed to anyone trying to come to God on their own terms until now. But on this particular day, this day that would still be a thousand years in the future, David is writing of this glorious king in which a very special person would come up to the gates, a king with clean hands and a pure heart who never lifted up his soul to any vain thing, who never swore deceitfully, never did any evil deed or thought an evil thought when the gatekeepers keep asking the question after they say open the doors they're saying who is this king who is this king of glory and they're answering he is the lord almighty himself now how can that be we've just seen this long qualifications of a man who is worthy of ascending god's holy hill and now we're told that god himself is the one who's ascending up God's holy hill. And this doesn't really make sense to us until Christmas. Because finally, in that little town of Bethlehem, we see a man who was not born in the ordinary manner. We see a man who was born of a virgin, conceived by God Himself, by the Holy Spirit, in her womb. He is both God and man. He is the Lord Almighty, and yet He's also a perfect, worthy man, a king, who can ascend God's holy hill. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The one who would finally restore His reign over the chaos. Conquering sin and death forever. The Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Who would open wide the gates of paradise for all who would come in His name. It's interesting that traditionally this psalm was read every week on Sunday because the first two verses in the psalm. So, so uh, in the temple, as well as in the synagogues, the priest would read, uh, and, and other elders in the synagogues would read, this passage to commemorate creation. 
So it's the, you know, the, the first two verses go back to God establishing uh, the land upon the waters, upon the rivers. But it's interesting, James Boyce, is a, um, who was a theologian pastor who passed away a few years ago, he, he had surmised that on Palm Sunday, because this is the tradition of Jews, that on the very moment that Jesus is entering into the city gates, the priests are asking the question, who is this King of Glory? And it keeps being asked, who is this King of Glory? In fact, Matthew's Gospel tells us explicitly that all the people in the town that were not a part of the entourage bringing Him in to the city are asking the same question, who is this man? Who is this King? He's riding on a donkey. Is He a King? And of course, the, those in His train are all saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In other words, Hosanna in the Almighty. This is the King of glory. His name is Jesus. And as a result, the gates of the temple in Jerusalem are opened wide for His entrance within. But like the legend of King Arthur, if you will, uh, this is only the trial run, if you will. There's a second time where he has to again enter through the gates, enter into the temple courts, because the temple in Jerusalem is merely a copy of the heavenly house of the Lord. The Levite, the gatekeepers there that uh, Jesus had to pass beyond in order to enter the, t- into the temple were just the trial run. Ultimately, the ones he would have to pass by would be the holy cherubim themselves. In the book of Revelation, we see there are 12 gates to the city of New Jerusalem, and there's an angel guarding each one. Jesus would have to enter through those gates, and they would have to ask the same question, who is this King of glory? Who has the right to ascend God's holy hill? And in response, we see myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying, this is Jesus the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, not only worthy to enter into the gates, but they say that He is worthy to receive all power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. He's worthy to ascend God's holy hill. He's worthy to take the scroll. He's worthy to consummate all of God's plan from the very beginning. As David had prophesied in verse 5 of our text, Christ would receive this blessing from the Lord. He would receive the righteousness and vindication of God, the God of our salvation. But in verse 6, if you go back to the text, notice that David changes the pronouns from verse 5 to verse 6. Now he's not speaking of individual in the third person singular, but now speaking of a plurality of people, a whole generation of men and women who would follow in his footsteps, who also have come up ascending God's hill, seeking the face of God, and and they too receive God's blessings. But in this case, they're receiving righteousness, an alien righteousness, not their own, but they're receiving righteousness as a gift from the God of their salvation because they have come in the name of Christ. And this is why the first four authors, uh, the first four books in the New Testament, they call their books Gospels. It's a very interesting word, a term that was very common, actually, in ancient times, because most of the Roman emperors used that same term in reference to their own throne speeches. Every time they spoke, they believed themselves to be saviors and lords of the world. They had ushered in 
the peace, the Pax Romana, if you will. They had ushered in this new world order. And so every time they spoke, it was called a gospel. This was good news that their emperor was reigning over all. In contradistinction to that, we see the gospel writers are saying, here's the true good news. This is the great news of God's salvation through our son, through his son, Jesus Christ. And this news would change the world for the better. Why? Because there's no one in the world who would ever meet the perfect qualifications of entering into the presence of God. None of us could come close. All of us would fail miserably. And thus it's only through our trust in His name, our union with His very righteousness, our union with His death, His life, His resurrection, that we have hope of ever entering into the presence of God. In fact, in the book of Revelation, His followers are all described as having the name of Jesus written on their foreheads to show that not a single one of them had the right to be there without Jesus' name being written upon them. Because no one could ascend God's holy hill based upon their own merits. It has to be solely in the name of Christ. And anyone who doesn't have that name, as Jesus speaks in the parable, doesn't wear those righteous robes, is immediately cast out into the darkness. He has to come in the name of Christ. So as we're invited to come before the Lord's table again this morning, we're called to remember one name. The only name under heaven whereby we must be saved. And that's the name of Jesus. If we don't bear His name upon our foreheads, if His name is not written upon our hearts, we have no hope of ascending God's holy hill. We have no assurance whatsoever of being able to be at rest in the presence of God. I I tell you this this morning, if you have any doubts about where you stand in the realm of eternity, Where will you stand on the day of judgment? Will God let you into heaven? Will He not let you into heaven? If you have any doubts about that, I tell you this, do not look to your own merits. They will never measure up. You will always fail miserably. In order to get into heaven, there are two things that have to happen. One is you have to be perfect. Check. No. You have to rely upon someone else's perfection, someone else's righteousness. And at the same time, all your sins have to be wiped out. No sin, perfect righteousness. The only way that can happen is through the cross of Christ. And so when we speak of the first advent of Christ, He came as a baby to grow up as a man, to live the full life that Adam didn't live, that we couldn't live, to show that He is worthy to ascend God's holy hill. The reason why we celebrate Christmas is because He had to come to live the life that we couldn't. And when we trust in His name, we have peace with God. When we trust in His name, order is restored. A new world order is brought to us. We can see the kingdom of heaven. And we have hope for the first time. We have assurance of the love of God for the first time amongst many that the Lord is the Savior of sinners.
and he has a long train in his robe. After he ascends God's holy hill, there are many, many others that come after him. Not based upon their own merits, but based solely upon the name of Christ. Come, let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Old Testament. We pray that we would not think in any way that we can compare ourselves with others, that we can measure our good deeds versus someone else's when the standard is not other people. The standard is God and His perfections. Lord, help us to see that only God Himself could save us through the Son. His name is Jesus. He is the King of glory. Lord, help us to remember His name. Help us to trust in His name. Help us to cling to His name that we too might be saved and might ascend God's holy hill. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Won't you stand with me? Let's sing the hymn based upon this passage. It's Advent hymn. Lift up your heads, ye mighty gates.